Hi, everybody. This is Jeannie Faulkner, and you're listening to Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting, the podcast. I'm the author of Common Sense Pregnancy, the book, uh, which is a Penguin Random House publication that came out in 2015. Um, Happy New Year, everybody. I'm really um, glad to be back with you guys this week after taking a couple weeks off for holidays and family and all that. Um, Did any of you guys make any resolutions? If you're, you know, expecting, if you're pregnant or have a baby on the way, I hope you cut yourself some slack. It seems like you've got enough new stuff going on in 2017. For the rest of us, uh, I made a few. Um, You know, I like to be a generalist when it comes to resolutions. You know, I'm just going to keep on keeping on. I'm in a pretty good place right now. And all I want to do is keep doing it. Um, You know, that, of course, requires time management and physical health and enough energy to get it all done. And that's where I'll focus my resolutions. I'll just try to do my best and cut myself a bunch of slack when necessary. I hope you guys are going to do the same. I don't know if it works when you try to really nail down a big life change on a particular day. I like that it, you know, New Year's Day and January kind of motivates people to evaluate what they could improve. Um, I think that's the direction we should go, you know. Um, Well, we're going to start out our podcast this uh, year by looking back. Our guest today studies the history of parenting um, back to the 19th century and before that even. And she's got some really interesting perspectives to share. Um, Before we get our guest on the line, though, let's talk about what's happening coming up. I am super excited to announce that I'll be attending the Women's March on Washington in D.C. on January 21st, and I'm hoping I'll be doing some interviewing for our podcast um, from the field. I want to ask women that I meet from all different walks of life, all over the country, all over the world, um, who are there to gather together on that really momentous day. I'm going to ask a few of my signature questions, um, like... Who are you and what do you do? And how do you answer the question, nobody ever told me that? And I'm going to ask them, why are you marching? Why did you come all this way to stand together with all these women? And then we'll see where the conversation goes, huh? I'm kind of expecting that it's going to go some places I didn't really anticipate. And I imagine that a lot of the answers will be very similar and that we're going to get some really, really different perspectives. I am so looking forward to it. Um, Let's see what else. January, it's officially join the gym month. And I'm right on track with the rest of the world. Um, I haven't been in a gym in quite a while. I used to go to a gym for cardio and weight training and the occasional class. But then I got so bored and I quit. And You know, later on, year or so later, I joined again for all the usual reasons, but then I missed being outdoors. And again, I got really bored. And so I quit and I started running or sort of my version of running. I am slow and I don't go far, but I'm pretty consistent. You know, I can do a few miles a few days a week. Um, And I started doing that a couple of years ago. And I really love it because it's convenient and I love the freedom and I love that I can just lace up my sneakers and 45 minutes to an hour later, I have really, I've been somewhere, I've done something and I feel really, really good. 
but damn, it is cold here in Portland right now. And once again, I'm thinking about joining a gym. I know that, you know, it, it was 18 this morning when I got up and I know that that's balmy compared to some parts of the country, but what can I say? You guys know me and my Portland weather. Um, inside exercise sounds kind of lovely, right? A yoga class here or there, a nice toasty treadmill. I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about it. If we don't get a little bit of a break in this cold snap, I might be joining another gym. Oh, let's see what else. As always, there's a lot going on in the news this week that pertains to, you know, our topics of conversation, but I'm going to give you all a break from the political stuff this week. Um, but let's talk about, oh my God, the most incredible mother bond, daughter bond that I can think of right now, Carrie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds. Whoa, that was heartbreaking. But you know what I would give to ask these two, where are you in your life in terms of motherhood right now? They'd have a lot to say, right? Dying just 24 hours apart. It's such a sad, sad loss. Um, well, you know, let's just get right to today's guest. Um, I'm really excited to talk to her. Paula Fass is an author, a UC Berkeley professor, and a new grandmother. And let's get her on the line. Good morning. Hi, Paula. How are you? I'm doing really well. Good, good. So it's cold here. I'm in Portland, Oregon, just up the street from you. You're down in Berkeley, right? I am down in Berkeley looking out at some very nice weather today. And starting tomorrow, we're supposed to get a, a really intense rainstorm. Are you ready? snow in the mountains. Yeah. We're supposed to get an ice storm here. Um, oh, but they we've had a couple already this winter and they are really really beautiful and just a tremendous pain in the ass <laughs> and treacherous drive yeah absolutely i don't drive when when there's ice on the road i just don't but smart lady yeah i'm very smart <laughs> um but what i do is the day before I go to the store and I stock up on the essentials of life. And it's just, it's always so hilarious to me, you know, what I see my fellow shoppers getting. And it's just so funny. I used to live in Los Angeles and there would be, you know, we didn't get ice storms, we didn't get snowstorms, but we'd get, you know, the day of an earthquake. And that would be when people would go to the grocery store and get their emergency food. And it'd be, you know, everything from coffee and bagels to the guys with, Shopping carts filled with Doritos and beer. <laughs> that, that, that's very smart. <laughs> yeah. Now, you know, you're supposed to stock up on those things before the earthquake. I know. I understand people <laughs> wait to the last minute. But yeah. Doritos and beer, they're, they're waiting for something else to happen. Yeah, yeah. They're ready for whatever it's going to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Paula, what I want to do right now is I want to read your bio, or at least a good chunk of it, and then start talking. Sound good? Yes, it's great. Cool. Paula Fass, the Margaret Byrne Professor of History Emerita at the University of California at Berkeley, is the author, most recently, of The End of American Childhood, A History of Parenting from Life on the Frontier to the Managed Child. Princeton University Press, 2016. Over the course of her 40-year career, she has researched and written about many aspects of American culture and society, including 
immigration, education, sexuality, youth culture, and family life. Over the past 20 years, she's been instrumental in developing the field of the history of childhood as a global and interdisciplinary field of inquiry. She's also the author of Children of a New World, Society, Culture, and Globalization, Kidnapped, Child Abduction in America, Outside In, Minorities in the Transformation of American Education, and The Damned and the Beautiful, American Youth in the 1920s. Whoo, lady, you've been a working girl. You have been a working girl. I have been working very hard. Yeah. also raising my children at the same time. Well, you know, my first question generally is, now that I've read your stellar bio, who are you and what do you do? I'm an American historian, Mm -hmm. and I have been uh, teaching and researching uh, for over 40 years at this point. Um, I love my students, and I love my audience, Mm -hmm. uh, so I try to write and teach about things that have some relevance to our lives. And I certainly have always written from inside my own set of concerns. So for example, as a a mother who's raised two children, I'm concerned about issues of parenting. Mm -hmm. And there has not been really a history of parenting um, that has been written by a real historian. So I thought I would fill that gap. Um, I have also written about kidnapping in the United States because that was a concern that I had. So one of the things that I've been trying to do, uh, working very hard at doing, is expanding what we understand to be history and to be the tasks that historians work at, Mm -hmm. rather than just look at matters that are you know, high policy or um, governmental concern. I look at what people are concerned with, what their communities are like, what their society, how their societies have been built up, as you as you mentioned. Um, and um, I think that I've managed to attract a lot of students and an audience by showing people what life was like in the past so that they can understand the lives they lead today better. And that was really what uh, led me to try to understand parenting and its history in the United States. Well, a couple of things come to mind. One is, um, you know, I bet your classes are popular because this is really the meaty stuff that life is all about. You know, there's nothing more relevant to people's lives than parenting. Either they were parented or they are parenting. Um, And then the other thing that came to mind is, you're at Berkeley. You are with the brightest of the brightest over there. I, I'm curious about the conversations you and your students have had about this. Well, let's start with the fact that you, you've put your finger on it, that in fact, this is a universal experience. Anyone who is alive today has had parents, even though those parents may not have been in the picture for very long or they've had various substitute parents. Mm -hmm. Um, So the the universality of that experience, of course, is one of the things that appeals to me. And it's why, as a historian of childhood, I really think that we need to study it in a global perspective to see what's different about the way we raise our children and how that relates to other aspects of our culture and our society. A lot of Americans... my Berkeley students... Yes, of course, they're very, very smart, Um, and they have responded, 
I think, in ways um, that are in some ways not to be expected. Um, they're willing to dig deep into their own experiences and to talk about themselves and to try to understand, understand themselves as historical actors and in a historical sense. Now, you know, one, one can sometimes think that students who are highly ambitious and very motivated would only be interested in doing the conventional things. But Berkeley students aren't conventional, which is one of the reasons they're so much fun. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're willing to, to take chances and they're willing to connect. So that has been very much fun for me. I, I should say that I've also taught at Rutgers and my actually my in New Jersey. Uh, it's the State University in New Jersey, mm -hmm. um, and my experience there was actually more recent because I taught there after I retired from Berkeley. I taught there for several semesters, and uh, the students there initially were much more reserved, much more, much less willing to open up their own experiences, more concerned about getting it right. Hmm. So That's interesting. So that contrast with Berkeley students. Berkeley students have um, a vibe. That's all I can say. They're, hmm. they're, they're there and eager to learn about themselves as well as about the world. Wow. That's, that's, a, that's a great place in the world to be. Yeah. So have, you, have you ever visited? Yeah, I visited once. Um, I'm actually, I'm a California native and, um, I had a brother that lived in that area. So, you know, I'm somewhat familiar, but I was never a UC Berkeley candidate. I wasn't that good of a student. I went through the Cal State University system and I like to brag that I think I went to almost every one of the Cal State universities <laughs> in Southern California before finally finishing up, um, nursing school over at, uh, LA County Hospital. So I had, a, I had a really different experience educationally. <laughs> yeah. I, I understand. Yeah, you, yeah. You've done it your way. Yeah, yeah, I did. So tell me about your most recent book, The End of American Childhood, A History of Parenting from Life on the Frontier to the Managed Child. Um, you know, one thing that I, I think that you kind of discuss American parenthood as kind of a unique having a unique personality, um, gritty, autonomous, self-sufficiency, and that that kind of came into being in the early 19th century. Am I right? You're completely what was uh, What was unusual about American parents is that they gave their children a larger role in the household. They gave their children more autonomy. They did not emphasize hierarchy and authority to anywhere near the degree that was true elsewhere in the Western world at the time, not to speak of other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. um, uh, part of that was a, a, an inheritance from the American Revolution, where they thought very hard about what it would take to make independent children so that they could maintain the kind of independence that, of the society they had created. But the other thing was was circumstantial and that is the Americans had lots and lots and lots of land and so they developed children who were very early able to pick up 
pick themselves up and do things on their own to develop a kind of independence, autonomy, and self-sufficiency that was required to be able to develop and take, take advantage of the resources that were available to them. Uh, so the United, uh, in the United States, parents um, emphasize the resilience of their children, the resourcefulness of their children, and the word that you used, which I like a lot, the kind of grit of their children. Um, now that that began to change over time, even in the 19th century, but it has remained a kind of uh, a kind of tradition in the United States. So anthropologists who compare American parenting with parenting elsewhere still talk about the fact that Americans elevate the idea idea of independence for their children as something that they value. Now, that doesn't mean that they necessarily anymore endow them the same kind of independence. In fact, one of the things I argue is that over the last 35 years or so, we have been torn between this tradition of independence and the much more managerial emphasis we sometimes call it helicoptering, right. uh, that we've adopted with our children. Yeah, it's uh, interesting, so isn't it? They still give lip service to the ideal of independence. And certainly today, we talk about grit and resourcefulness. In fact, our children are a lot less independent than they used to be. Oh, yeah. And that's true in all classes, I think, although not true necessarily among immigrant groups. Who, have, who require that their children be independent. Otherwise, they can't adapt to the American, to the, to the American scene. Right. You know, I, some of what you were describing about, you know, frontier children and, and having room to roam and the expectation that they would shoulder responsibilities and then, you know, also be able to kind of go out in the world and do their thing. It is somewhat reflected today in... Um, many developing countries and countries that have a lot of farmland still or ranch land or room to roam. And it's interesting, you know, that, you know, even just looking over my, my lifespan, how we've seen such a big shift from, you know, in my childhood, I could run down to the beach on my own, pretty much at will. And with my children, not so much, you know. And with today's kids, they barely go around the block. The, the, the fears and anxieties about children take, I think, several forms. The first has to do with our increasing fear uh, of, the, of the harms that are out there for children. Mm -hmm. uh, the internet, uh, predators, you know, I've written about child kidnapping and worries about child kid kidnapping. Some of that, of course, is encouraged by the media. Uh, so that- I'd uh, say a lot of it. Have been encouraged to be more anxious and to worry about their children more. The other kind of anxiety, I think, has to do with the more general global reality of the economy that we now live in. And that is the fears about the success of our children, that we don't have the advantages of free land anymore. We are no longer in the kind of privileged situation that Americans had for a very long time, where they were just richer than everyone else. They had more resources than everyone 
trials. And now we're competing on a really global way. We also had much more education than anyone else, which is no longer the case, as we know from various kinds of uh, comparisons and PISA scores uh, across the world. So American parents have become anxious about the success of their children, not just about the harms to their children. And there's so much more emphasis now played on uh, placed on cognition mm-hmm. and schooling and educating up to the hilt. And so that we are much more overseeing. We oversee their time. We want to make sure they already can ha- read their alphabet by the time they're two or three years old. Um, when you, when, when I, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, kindergarten was definitely not about learning. It was about play. It was about and nap time on the mat. Second grade were about play too. All of that has now become restricted. There's much less playtime. So there are a bunch of different anxieties that are taking place at the same time that there's this huge emphasis on becoming perfect parents. And mothers especially are really barraged by that, the idea that they have to do it perfectly. Um, And there is no perfect parenting. It doesn't exist. Uh, We do the best that we can for our children. We can't entirely shield them from harms. And in fact, our children today are middle-class children at any rate, are much healthier, they're safer, and all of those things are true, and yet we worry about them more. We do, yeah. You know, though, you know, there's a lot of a lot to unpack there about what you just said. But one thing that comes to mind, you know, my um, I have kids ranging from 16 to 32, and over that span, you know, I certainly approached parenthood from the perspective of they need to get into good schools, they need to be, you know, educating themselves for the employment climate that we're in. And what this generation of kids is teaching us is that that model doesn't really work for them right now. You know, there there are kids who are going to do the traditional route. And, and maybe it's just that I'm raising, you know, non-traditional kids. But I think that we're seeing this, uh, we've reached a plateau in terms of how much parents want to push their kids right now and we're starting to look at it differently you know oh, the term really glad to hear that. yeah i think the term helicopter parent is a label people don't want anymore and i think that it's reflective of parents needs to absolutely do the very best that they can but then also recognize that their entire life can't be about raising that child they have to have a fuller life a fuller expression. A child's life can't be about meeting the expectations of their parents. Right. The child has got to be given enough freedom to make their choices for right. themselves. Right. And to suit their own talents and 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 motivations. Yeah. So I agree. I just heard recently a new term that I had not been familiar with, the third child phenomenon. In other words, raise your 
first child as if it were a third child. <laughs> but that's, have more yeah. Don't yeah. be so obsessive. Don't yeah. be so concerned about every detail. And that's very interesting to me because it now it says something that Dr. Spock told parents in the 1950s, that they were more competent than they'd been led to believe. Because in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, one of the things I also write about, um, child-rearing advice and the industry around child-rearing had grown immensely in the United States. And so even at that point, parents were batted around with different kinds of advice and were being undermined in their sense of knowing what to do. And so we're not the first, uh, we're not the first generation that's experienced that. And then Dr. Benjamin Spock came along and basically said, you know, you've got to relax. Yeah. Enjoy your child and let the child find its own autonomy and path. And so in a sense, I've been saying for a while that we right now what we could use is a Dr. Spock. And it seems to me this idea of the third child is something like that. In other words, by the time you get around to the third child, you can be more relaxed and more confident that you know things and don't have to be constantly referring to experts and authorities about what to do. But, you know, I, I like that in theory. And I'm, you know, I have four kids of my own and a niece that I've helped raise as well. So I've, you know, heck, I'm raising my youngest as a fifth child. <laughs> but I I don't know that that's actually something that's a possibility for most parents because I think that it's shocking what you go through as a first-time parent. And you can't necessarily relax because the you know, the entire experience, physically, emotionally, spiritually, through your relationships, through your career, through your relationships and your families, through every aspect of your life is different. And there's no getting around it. And unless you have been raised with, you know, a lot, a lot of kids around you, most parents don't know what they're doing. So, you know, how do you relax? I certainly did not know what I was doing. I didn't either. I'm, you know, my... And you're a nurse. Yeah, yeah. I'm a nurse and I'm you know, part of a big family, and I was well supported by my husband and my sisters. And, you know, I had the best possible situation. Um, But no, I was very anxious about it. (laughs) Very anxious. I think that's the normal state of being. Because we have these almost ridiculous expectations for moms. And it's just a new and shocking experience for everybody. Well, you know, in the 19th century, when a child came, certainly the first child, it was called the little stranger, which which captures some of that. In other words, there's this completely strange experience that's been introduced into your life. And of course, in the 19th century, being a mother was what most women were preparing to do as they grew up. And even for them, the little stranger phenomenon was the case. And today, as women are trained to do all kinds of things, and your women are older and older as they have their children, uh, the intrusion of a child, uh, while very often very much wanted, can be quite a shock. Uh, as I mean, all parts of it can be shocking, from the birth process itself, for which we're really not given very much preparation, 
to the to lactation to the child not having any not having any sleep and having various kinds of demands um, I had no one to help me except my husband uh, and it was it was a very difficult process that through which I I learned a great deal and I have to tell you the most important thing that I learned the most important thing that I learned was to connect both historically and and socially to all the other mothers who had had this experience it was I mean I had been a scholar I had been working for for quite a while before I had my first child so it was a, a very very new experience and uh an eye-opener for me. Yeah, it is an eye-opener. I think that that's something also that's pretty universal is that um, once a woman becomes a mother, she walks through a door she didn't even know was there. She'd heard about the door, but what was behind it was something entirely different from what she ever anticipated. And then she recognizes all the moms are there. <laughs> They're all there. Yeah, yeah. Um. You know, you were talking a little bit about the 20s and 30s, and I'm kind of curious about the parenting shifts that took place, you know, in the early 20th century as parents went from working in farms and fields to working in factories and, you know, how this influenced child labor laws and development of child care. Can you speak to that somewhat? Well, I, uh, the development of the factory system, of course, was something that happened in the 19th century. Yeah. And what it meant in many, many cases, was that children moved out of the, the home into factories when they did their work, and they were supervised by strangers, not by their parents, um, which made the factory system and the labor of children into something very different than it had been before. And it led to various kinds of reform movements that changed the nature of childhood, really. Uh, it led to an, a greater emphasis on schooling, that children should be going to school and not be exploited in factories. Uh, it led to various kinds of new laws that uh, required oversight of factories. And it led to laws which eventually took children out of those factories. I say eventually because it took a good 40 or 50 years until most children young children at any rate, were taken out of factories. So that was a, a major transformation. It also meant, and this is something that uh, we need to, to remember, it meant that the government became involved in family life in ways that had not been the case uh, before in the United States. I mean, one of the ways that American families were different was that they had basically, there were very few laws that oversaw family life and family relationships. Uh, it wasn't until the late 19th century that both philanthropic groups and various state government agencies and laws began to oversee how parents were supposed to treat their children and the kinds of treatment that children could expect. And much of that resulted from the new factory system where it was believed that children should not be exploited either by the factory owners or by their own parents who often needed their help and their, their wages from the factory. So the government then comes into play in the late 19th and early 20th century around issues of children and issues of child care. And that's where the schools also 
become much more significant and uh, and effective. Uh, so yes, there's a there's a large transformation that takes place, and a lot of the people who were involved were of course immigrants, and so they because much of American industrialization drew huge numbers, millions of immigrants in the late 19th and early 20th century to our shores because we were able to uh, offer jobs at higher wages than elsewhere. So a very complicated kind of set of things happens where now reformers look to the state the states, really, rather than to the federal government at that point, to oversee child welfare and and issues relating to children. And they begin to become involved in family life. Um, And that changes the expectations that people have of children. One of the other effects, and this, this turn of the century between the 19th and 20th century is a very important period because these very reformers also begin to apply themselves to issues having to do with infant mortality. You know, in the 19th century, most families, most parents, both fathers and mothers, could expect to lose a large number of the children that they bore. Uh, That was a, a kind of grief and sorrow that all families went through. It wasn't really until the late 19th century with public health measures and the early 20th century with um, various kinds of medical interventions uh, that children began to survive much in much more expected ways. So the changes in child mortality and the ability of parents to expect to raise the children that they bore has a huge transformative effect on child rearing. As it's, you might expect. I it's mean, still just, like that in many parts I, of the world. It's an enormous, it has enormous consequences. And it's also at that point, as doctors become an, involved in advising parents about how to take care of the physical cleanliness of their children, what kinds of foods to feed their children, um, how to to tell whether their children have an elevated temperature, when to take them to see a doctor. When that kind of advice comes in, that child-rearing advice of all kinds begins to become more common. Mm -hmm. And so as that takes off, as child-rearing advice becomes more common, there are now various kinds of advisors and experts who take on issues of child psychology, of emotional life, of cognitive life, and of what we would normally describe as the developmental profile of children. What can you expect of a child at six months, Mm -hmm. at one year, at two years or three years, etc.? That much more self conscious kind of child rearing is what 20th century parents really now have yeah. that they're much much more aware of what their what they what their children should be doing at various points and that has also led to that elevated anxiety about whether your you are your children are meeting the expectations, the developmental expectations, the emotional expectations, um, the ability to use language, etc., that has now become a kind of obsession among parents. You know, know, it makes me think that before there was this big, you know, developmental shift for kids, um, or, or I should say industry shift for kids, the expertise for how to raise your children came from mothers. 
It was a, it was a mother's industry. And then we moved into the medical model and suddenly the experts were learned men outside the home who really didn't know anything about you, you know, yes. and, and from a, from, yeah, yeah. And from a feminist perspective, I got to wonder, you know, where would we be as a society if that had not occurred? Who knows? You know, and I also think about the era when we grew up, you know, I was raised by a very Catholic woman, and I'm the youngest of eight, and my siblings are as much as 22 years older than me. And this was during the 60s when I was a kid. And there was a lot going on in the world that certainly influenced my parents. But I think their, you know, I think their parenting style must have shifted gear pretty radically, considering that they started in the late 30s with my oldest sister, and then had me in the 60s. So you know, they, they kind of went from, they, they went a lot of distance in terms of parental attitudes. Absolutely. I'm yeah. sure that's true. Although as Catholics and as people who probably had continuing connections with their own parents or their sisters or their, uh, or, or, or uncles and, uh, and aunts, um, and cousins, there was a kind of continuity that came from the family network. That kind of continuity was precisely what a lot of child-rearing experts were trying to break. I mean, one of the things that male child-rearing experts, and they were almost inevitably males, uh, did was they wanted to introduce the scientific perspective rather than the the, the, the old wives' tales that they felt was being passed on to, to women through their parents and their family connections. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, I suspect that even your parents, even though they may have had those kinds of connections, were instructed when the children were born in the hospitals, for example, by nurses and doctors to pay more attention to the expert advice mm-hmm. that was on offering, uh, was, was being offered uh, uh, at that point. And they were, their attention was being turned to various kinds of written advice that was out there. You know, by the 1930s and 40s, um, even then, there was advice offered in newspapers uh, and on the radio, uh, so that the, the child rearing industry was already beginning to attach itself to various media uh, and spreading the word uh, to people. So your parents may actually have been exposed to various kinds of child rearing advice early, but I'm almost certain that the content of that advice would have shifted radically yeah. towards a very different kind of child rearing, um, much more the, the, the Dr. Spock idea of giving your children more freedom, of not uh, being uh, tied to schedules, which was very common in the 20s and 30s, kind of scheduled feeding, mm-hmm. scheduled sleeping, and imposition of a more behaviorist kind of pattern. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, interesting. And, you know, also, I'm the youngest. Talk about, you know, the third child. (laughs) They were pretty darn relaxed by number eight. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, you know, then we move into the era when when I had my kids, which was, you know, the 80s, 90s, and my last one was born in 2000. And, you know, our parenting focus during those times was it really depended on who you read. And there were 
hundreds of books that popped up during this time. And my sister um, had a child about the same time. I swear she read every one of them. And I think that they both made her feel more confident and also more insecure about her ability to raise her daughter well. And I kind of rebelled and I didn't look at as many of them. Though my listeners will know that, you know, four-year-olds, man, they baffle me. And I about wore out my, your four-year-old book. <laughs> yeah. Well, as, as someone who has been studying this, this material historically for quite a while, when I had my children, I decided that I was not going to read too much of it just a little bit. And mm-hmm. the reason I made that decision was because I knew that historically there had been so many conflicting kinds of advice that were offered that I actually did not want to feel, kind of create my own insecurity by being told one thing from one book and then another thing by another. Right. And right. by the time my children came along, which was in the 1980s, there were already a variety of conflicting uh, forms of advice out there. Uh, and as we know today, that advice can literally change on a dime. Oh, yeah. Uh, there are different schools of advice, um, and and people gravitate uh, to advice that um, confirms what they want to hear sometimes. Yeah. Um, just as they do politically. Is that, have you had that oh, experience heck with yes. your listeners? Oh, heck yes. Oh, yeah. I can't think of anything more polarizing than, than you know, parenting opinions can be you know especially if you're picking something that has a range of perspectives like say you know breastfeeding or circumcision or you know whatever yeah it, it can be very polarizing which sleeping with your baby oh yeah 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 there's you know a million different ways to go about this and and I think that you know sort of my you know I've written a couple of books myself and I've written hundreds of magazine articles about this subject. And I am hoping that what I'm offering to this media conversation is the message that you probably know what you're doing. And you can probably relax a little bit. And you know, here's some insider information from 20 years as a labor and delivery nurse that you might want to know about how your prenatal and labor and delivery care is going. And you know, most of what we're afraid of isn't going to happen. And, you know, when you're looking at all of these, <clears throat> you're hearing about all of these risks and studies and data that says that, you know, you're in this high risk group. Well, you know what? Actually, you probably aren't. You're probably fine. You know? Okay. Yeah. I'm from my labor and delivery nurse. Because <laughs> with my daughter, if my labor and delivery nurse had not been given, telling me what to do and making suggestions, I would have had to have a C-section because the doctor just insisted on it. Yeah. And she knew what she was doing. I mean, yeah. they, they, this is people who have real experience. Yeah. You know, hands-on experience. I sent her an enormous bouquet of flowers when after my daughter was And born. she loved it. I can guarantee. Yeah. Yeah. Once you, you know, had your hands-on couple hundred, couple thousand labor and mamas, you kind of know how the process goes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad your, your listeners have you uh, to get advice from. 
I am too. Yeah, I am too. Yeah, I am. I've come at it from a whole lot of perspectives. So you and I have talked for a good long time now, and I want to ask you just a couple more questions that I like to ask everybody. Um, one of them is, how would you answer the question, nobody ever told me, fill in the blank? Nobody ever told me how painful childbirth would be. Uh-huh. Nobody ever told me that, in fact, uh, babies have personalities right away, mm-hmm. and that if you have more than one child, they have different personalities. Really different. And I always imagined <laughs> that this was a tabula rasa from, you know, John Locke, uh-huh. and that you could just format a child in any way that you thought was possible. Uh-huh. Uh, nobody ever told me how enormously emotionally gratifying it would be despite all the difficulties of, of raising children. Um, and nobody ever told me, finally, that your children would you know you better than anybody else. Yeah, that's the ultimate, isn't it? That's the spooky it part. <laughs> yeah. All right. And then our last question today is, where are you in your life in terms of motherhood? Well, I have just been lucky enough to have a grandchild. Mm. So in terms of motherhood, I am uh, thrilled with this little boy who's today 17 months old. Oh, fun age. And tremendously fun and just eating up the world. Yeah. Everything is just an exploration and a delight. And so being with him has been wonderful. And we're actually waiting for them to arrive next week. Uh They're coming to visit. So we've been making all kinds of preparations. They were going to come this week, but for various reasons couldn't. So um, uh, where am I? I am happily watching uh, my children start having children of their own. Fine. And of course, that doesn't mean it leaves me without anxieties. Grandparents have anxieties too. Mm -hmm. Uh, And my anxieties and my wishes is for a safe and peaceful world so that they can grow up into it. And given that this is the beginning of a a new year, I wish that to all your listeners as well, for their children and for their grandchildren. Yeah. Um, So that's where I am as as a parent. That's a pretty good place to be. Well, Paula, this has just been wonderful talking to you. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I hope we're going to talk again down the road. Me too. This has been great fun for me. Thank you, Jeannie. Okay, good. We'll talk again. Bye-bye. Bye. Mama said there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this. Mama said. Mama said. Today's guest was Paula Fass. You can find her book, The End of American Childhood, wherever books are sold. You can find my book, Common Sense Pregnancy, at the same places. Amazon, Target, Barnes & Noble, your local bookshop. We're there. Just go find us. Um, You can learn more about my work at genefaulkner.com. You can email me, gene at genefaulkner. Tweet me, at genefaulkner. And, you know, go check out what else I do professionally over on the website, genefaulkner.com. Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting is produced in Portland, Oregon at Sounds Like Pictures Studios. Um, Alex Ward is our producer. I want to thank everybody for coming back and starting 2017 with us. Make sure that you share this on your social media platforms. Um, Subscribe. Tell your friends about it. 
and keep on coming back to join the conversation. We'll talk again next week. Bye, everybody. Bye.